This is Cinepunked. This episode, Morphe. John Cocteau's 1930 film Le Song d'un Poète had been an exercise in bold experimental cinema produced by a first-time filmmaker. By 1950, with several further filmic experiences under his belt, he returned to the world of mirrors, deaths and poets in Orphe. Based broadly on the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, as told by the Roman poets Virgil and Ovid, Orphe is about a popular young poet who is forced to journey into the mirror realm in order to defy death and save his wife. Regulars to the Cinepunk podcast will be aware that we have been exploring dreams and altered realities in our recent episodes, and in the last one, we explored Le Sang d'un Poet in detail. Now, we're going to run through Cocteau's Orphic trilogy in successive episodes here, so we're at the midpoint, and let's see what we make today of Orphe. And continuing his induction into Cocteau and traversing the mirror, with me today is Neil Sedgwick. Say hi, Neil. How's it going? Hello, and everybody. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. And from this point on, I will warn you, there are spoilers ahead because, well, it's so much more fun to talk about a 70-year-old film whenever you can spoil it a little bit. Um, so, Blood of a Poet we did last week. And yeah. uh, that was your induction to Cocteau. Yeah, who I have now become mildly obsessed with. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, that Blood of a Poet is not the easiest of films to get into. Um, and I, I, I said in the last episode that when you got to things like Orfe, it was a little bit more commercial in, in view. Um, so where's your kind of, what, what is it that has suckered you in? I'm kind of intrigued by this because it's been so long since I kind of got suckered in. So it's nice to hear how somebody else has done it. It's kind of fine. Well, I find Blood of a Poet really engaging and really, even, even in its bizarreness, really compelling. Um, and if I'm honest, when when this film started, I was like, "This is a this is a real shift in gears because this is uh, much more linear storytelling. This is much more mainstream, like mm. um, contemporary. Um, you know, you think of some of the contemporaries around that time, like it would it would it would fit more neatly into." Uh, a mold of mm. what we expect from cinema, I suppose, than than Blood of a Poet. Um, and I find this story. Do you know? I actually, I actually find it more compelling once we got more into um, the underworld aspects, more mm. than the kind of build up to that, where uh, we have our Orpheus walking around. Um, is it Paris? Is it Paris or is it a French village? It's it's certainly from from Cocteau's own notes on it. It's it's Paris. It's uh, so Paris, I'm assuming yeah. it's a, it's a Paris suburb, probably. Um, yeah, because it doesn't and feel like the center. It just felt very kind of um, normal drama levels mm. until um, we discover the the involvement of of death. In, in the middle of it all and then it, then it takes a turn and um i don't know if you want to kind of give us a wee breakdown synopsis wise well i mean it, so it it opens up uh with orfe who is a very very popular uh, exciting poet um going for lunch at the hip cafe where all the young poets and artists hang out and there's a little bit of a, a conversation there and um 
then this other bright young poet uh, suggests um, is gets into a fight and ends up being knocked down by a couple of motorbikists. Uh, he is taken away by a princess in her big limo and Orpheus is asked to join them as witness to the crime. And then the princess takes them to her house where it transpires that the bright young poet has died. She yeah. then disappears with the, she reanimates the, the bright young poet. They go into a mirror. Uh, Orpheus tries to follow them and is rendered unconscious. Um, at that point, he then wakes up. He uh, finds the chauffeur and they go back to Orpheus's pad uh, and his wife, you were to say. And from there, I'm trying to remember how this plot goes because I hadn't written this down. Uh, once Sorry. They- once, <laughs> once they go back there, um, he is obsessed with the princess and trying to find her again. Um, and he is accompanied by the chauffeur, uh, Hertubus. Yeah. He is also obsessed with the car radio. He is. Yeah. The, the car radio is, car is radio. talking. He feels it's talking to him. It's giving out these messages, these sort of secret codes. Yeah. It's very kind of resistance in the second world war, uh, kind of French resistance kind of messages like, you know. Not quite the cat sat on the mat and the, the cow jumped over the cocoon nest or whatever, but it's 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 that kind of, you know, there's weird stuff. There's poetry there. That's the thing. Yeah. There's poetry he's finding and he's signing up. So um, he's gone missing for overnight. So the police have come along and they've tried to find out what's going on. There are also friends of the bright young poet are concerned about his whereabouts and they're trying to find out what's going on. And they now think that uh, Orphe has actually kidnapped or killed the, the, the young man. It's very, very strange. Um, and he then starts following the princess around the town. And it gets a little bit confusing. And then uh, his wife is in turn knocked over by some by the same motorbikists. And she dies. And then Hertubuse, who is revealed as a messenger of death, or death, um, takes Orphe into the Mirrorland in pursuit of them. Uh, they all end up on trial. If you're following this at home already, you know you're doing really well. But they all end up on trial, uh, and because they they have messed with the natural order of things. Yeah, the princess. It turns out is death. She is specifically Orfe's death, and she has broken the rules because she is in love with Orfe. Her uh, abuse is in love with Eurydice, and they're all let go on a caution. Basically, they're all bailed with the strict instructions that Orfe is never allowed to look at Eurydice again. So they can, they, they're they free to go back to the living world, but they, he can never look at her again because if he does so, then she will disappear. And she's fed up and depressed. The whole thing is, is ridiculous. And he ends up catching sight of her in the car mirror whilst he is busy listening to the radio like the obsessive that he is. And Hertubus takes him back into the mirror land again. Um, but this happens after... Orfe is shot in the groin, interestingly, um, by a crowd of angry fans of uh, the other fella. Suggest. Um, suggest. And then they, they go into the Mirrorland they, they, uh, where they find the princess. There's a declaration of love. And then she tells Hertubus to take Orfe back in time so that none of this stuff happens. And then it all ends happily ever after. <laughs> I think that is. Or does it? 
Well, I, we'll I mean, that's, that. that's, a, that's a long old synopsis for you. I probably should have just read Cocteau's synopsis. Might have been as much sense and taken as long. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a melt of a film, and it's 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 based quite loosely on the the, the sort of the classical Roman uh, poem, which I I studied at school. I mean, they made us do Virgil and Ovid. I can't remember which version it. I suspect it was the Metamorphoses version. Um, so if you, if you've been spared a classical education, Neil, uh, you know this this because <laughs> that that doesn't ring any bells with me at all. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. I, I, I love the stories, and then you sort of realize how much this stuff is is come on in the future. Cocteau's reason for picking was he wanted to write about he wanted to do a piece about poets because he does because mm. he's a poet himself. Um, he also says that uh, if he had picked the name of a famous poet out of a hat basically like made up one nobody would have believed it but somehow we believe uh in the characters whenever you use a name from history and so he picked this yeah. one from classical mythology which is interesting because at the start of the film he says because there is a voiceover bit where he is kind of setting all this up that it is uh an interpretation of the classic story and he says a legend is entitled to be beyond time and place Mm-hmm. Is the quote at the start of the film, which is, you know, there's, um, we can tell so many stories over and over again in different ways and different, you know, it's that Joseph Campbell thing, the hero's path. There's, there's a certain manner of telling mm-hmm. stories, um, and the repetition of stories, not, not in a Chinese whispers way where things change, but almost like uh, we we adapt stories for uh, the time that we're telling them in and things like that, which which I think kind of very much fits um, what he's attempting to do here. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing to, to bear in mind for anyone who's not familiar with this stuff is, or people who are slightly familiar with it, is that his version owes a little bit more to the um, sort of, there's a Victorian era, uh, retelling of it, Orpheus and you were, or Orpheus in the Underworld, um, which was done for mm. stage, and it sort of flips it around. It introduces humor into the story, which there isn't really in the original, and there very definitely is in Cocteau's version. Um, and it sort of it, it it adds the added complications of the going back and the the sort of the the besotment with with death and stuff as well. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a couple of Cocteau pieces as we go through this today because. I quite like what he has to say. He's got his pen. <laughs> I like some of the stuff that he has to say on it. And yeah. I think it's useful whenever we look back at what we were discussing last week with the blood of a poet and try and understand what it is that he's actually doing. Um, where he called the blood of a poet a documentary, which we, we talked at length about. Mm. Um, so and, and what, what Cocteau says, he says, the poet is like the dead in the sense that he walks invisibly among the living and is only imprecisely seen by them after his death. That is to say, in the case of the dead, when they appear in the form of ghosts. So I'm going to put that down as a starting point uh, in terms of our understanding of poets and death, because that's central to, to this. Um, I mean, is it worth me reading the the uh, the three themes that he himself says the film's about? Um, have you read this? I think I might have this. I think now, if this... Is this? Uh, I do have a Wikipedia article here. It, it is quoted quite liberally on the the Wikipedia there. Right, the success of death through which a poet must pass before he comes in that admirable line from Ma- Malarne. 
changed into himself at last by eternity. Mm-hmm. The theme of immortality, the person who represents Orphe's death, sacrifices herself and abolishes herself to make the poet immortal. Mm-hmm. And mirrors, we watch ourselves grow older mirrors, they bring us closer to death. Which when that was said in the in the film, I was like, that blew my mind. That that line just completely blew my mind. I was like, of course they do. Yeah. I've never I've never I've never thought of a mirror. Last time we we talked about how we how we view ourselves in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that every day when what however we view ourselves or hold ourselves, every time you look in a mirror, you're a little bit older than you were than the time before be that minutes seconds hours days whatever um Mm. so there is there is this idea of the mirror bringing you closer to death Mm. and in this film uh death travels through mirrors Mm. mirrors are the gateway as they have been in blood of a poet which is really interesting too Mm-hmm. I, th- I, I mean, we, we've we've talked so much about mirrors as being a, a a portal. I mean, in terms of the films that we've been chatting over recent weeks, that's what a mirror seems to function. It's it's a journey space from one reality into another. But this does add this whole extra level to it. This is saying that um, it's not just a, a journey, which you know, it's the un- the the journey from which no traveller returns. You know, to to paraphrase Shakespeare, um, this is the literally like staring death in the face this this is mm. addressing our mortality i guess that's why some people are so vain they don't like looking in the mirror <laughs> to have a vanity that looks in the mirror all the time but to have a vanity that is so bad that you cannot look in the mirror yeah um is, is something else after after that line i don't know if i'm gonna look in the mirror again the same way <laughs> it's a terrifying prospect it is uh, when you you open yourself up to that idea and just because obviously so much of this film revolves around death mm. um, with, with death as a central character. Um, also quite, quite interestingly to me, death, death presented not in the traditional um, kind of mythological way of, you know, cape, scythe, anything like that. Death, death presented in this film um as That's a bloody sexy <laughs> as a very beautiful woman yeah. and um almost um and i don't i don't mean this i don't mean this to be in a humorous way but a, a very kind of morticia adams mm-hmm. type when you think of that character if you haven't seen if you haven't seen this at all if i say to you death in this film looks a lot like morticia adams from the adams family that would give you an idea an idea of the the look of this character, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, and it <laughs> it even made me go, "Is that what they were doing in the Adams family? Is that is that a death representation?" Anyway, that's a total sidebar, but I, I couldn't help but notice the parallels. But yeah, death death presented as a as a very beautiful woman in this um, to to um, and there is a comment made in the film about why death is presented this way mm-hmm. um because you know it would have it would have no appeal um well and, let, let let me read you cocteau on this yeah <laughs> that is, i've got books this week <laughs> um <laughs> so he says 
death in my film is not death represented symbolically by an elegant young woman, but the death of Orfe. Each of us has our own, which takes charge of us from the moment of birth. So Orfe's death, exceeding her authority, becomes suggests, and suggests says to her, when she asks, do you know who I am? You are my death, and not your death. So she is his death. She is Orfe's death. But also with that, um, her to bees mm-hmm. is also death. So right. he he's not just her to be, he's not just an assistant. He is also the personification of death. Um, he also says uh, realism in, in unreality is a constant pitfall. People can always tell me that this is possible, that is impossible. But do we understand anything about the workings of fate? This is the mysterious mechanism that I have tried to make tangible. Why is Orfe's death dressed in this way or that? Why does she travel in her roles? And why does her to bees appear and disappear at will in some circumstances, but submit to human laws and others? This is the eternal why that obsesses thinkers from Pascal to the least of the poets. So, I mean, he's winding us all up as it always. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. I do what I want and you interpret it as you like. Which comes back to what we said last week about the idea of the poet sort of working on impulse. I mean, he he literally just sort of floats through the stuff and it's it's whatever comes to his mind um i'm gonna go and give you another quote from this one um he says that uh and i think i think sorry to be so quote heavy but i think it helps us kind of get ourselves into his mindset because he got quite annoyed by some of the people that were trying to put again a very straight linear interpretation on what he's doing because Mm -hmm. that is not how he's thinking um he says when i make a film it is a sleep in which i am dreaming Only the people and places of the dream matter. I have difficulty making contact with others as one does when half asleep. If a person is asleep and someone else comes into the sleeper's room, this other person does not exist. He or she exists only if introduced into the events of the dream. Sunday is not a real day of rest for me. I try to go back to sleep as quickly as possible. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) So, again... He also refers to this as as a sort of documentary again, because he is still dealing with this idea of sleep. Um, but it's a slight remove from the song Don Poet. There is other stuff going on here. So if we if we look at this about in terms of reality and dreams, I don't know. I'm I mean I'm convinced the whole thing's a dream. From the point where Orpheus bangs his head that's your point to escape the narrative of the film and say this is a dream they do they do ask Orfe several occasions very early on or they, or they say they make statements to that effect to kind of go do you know you're asleep mm-hmm. you know and in some contexts very early on in the, in the film he's he's having a conversation with somebody else who is a writer and I took that to mean you know he hadn't really produced any great work in a while mm. and that was why he referred to him as being asleep and there's a couple of other references but yeah i think there is the possibility of and again going back to blood poet where we're talking about delirium and um insomnia and you know being in a dreamlike state that there is a possibility for for this all to be a dream because some of the things that happen in it are so strange that it doesn't feel like any any of it could be uh, real in the sense of like a real event even in um 
some of the things that go on in that kind of underworld space. Um, but yeah, again, that's the underworld, so who knows? All the rules are off. Well, the, I think the problem with the logic in terms of understanding Cocteau's view is that for him, sleep is a reality. Mm. That that dreamscape is reality. It's almost like the. I mean, from what he said there about Sundays, he would rather be in bed asleep. Because in the sleep, then you can dream, and the dreams are where the reality and where the stories happen. It's not the everyday mundane, yeah. which is so counterintuitive. And it's kind of, it's, I suppose if we look back at some of the other films that we've talked about, I mean, is, is Neo more real in The Matrix when he's in the, the dreamscape or when he's in the, the reality? You know, the, one of those worlds is, I mean, there's a world that, that people choose to live in. It's the same yeah. when we talked about Free Guy. I mean, people are choosing to spend their entire lives in this animated computer world. Where where that's are you? More real. Where are you fully alive? Is the question. Yeah. You know, at, w- at what point are you fully alive? If I sit at my desk at work and daydream, hope hope nobody's listening to this from work. Um, but if I if I go into a daydream of thinking about things that I have upcoming that I'm perhaps looking forward to more than my nine to five. Mm-hmm. Where am I more alive in that daydream or sitting at that desk? Do you know? So there is, there is an argument to be, to be made there um, because the feelings that the daydream generates are more life-giving potentially than the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that track? <laughs> I, th- I think it does. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to get my head around some of this stuff. And because it, I mean, some of it's philosophy, and it depends mm. on whether or not you're into that philosophy. Um, but I find our obsessions with dreams kind of fascinating. Um, I wonder myself where sometimes you come out of a dream and you wonder where the real you is. There's also a sense when you finish a dream that part of you has died. Mm. So, I mean, he talks a lot about the fact that a poet has to die multiple times before he can really become alive before he really finds himself and i guess whenever you're dreaming you are a person for however long it is you have that dream and then when the dream ends the dream ends is very seldom that any of us will have a dream that continues into another dream that on successive nights we will continue our narrative whereas when we come out of the dream we come back into this world and we exist as per normal it's like being killed off at the end of a computer game and then rebooting uh, bring us back to free guy. Um, yeah, going back you know, to your start point. So, <sighs> I'm not sure. I've, this is terribly enlightening kind of train of thought, but it's just what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, an awful lot about this that is obsessed with with death and mortality and immortality, and the poet in this is in love with death. Yeah, but. Everyone's sort of in love with death. Yeah. Or death's in love with people. I don't know. Which is it? If you if you haven't considered the idea of death, you haven't considered that you're actually alive. Because death is the inevitability. So you have to at least give death some uh some consideration as you go. So for for me now, um, you're reaching, 
you're reaching stages in life where you consider I'm very fortunate. I have a, a 94 year old grandfather still alive. That's, you know, you start thinking at some point in the near future, mm. he will leave us. And then that cycle shifts to parents. Mm-hmm. And it, as a parent myself, there's always things about, are my kids safe? Because I don't want, uh, you know, so there's, you know, we have pets in the house. There's a certain limited mortality there, you know, mm-hmm. like death is something that you cannot avoid. Um, and it's, it's event makes you consider what life actually is. So to take my grandfather, when he uh, passes on, what am I going to, what am I going to learn from that life? And what am I going to take from that life to pass on to my kids and for them to pass on, you know, so those, those type of things. And I think, I think you get to a point in life. Like when I think of myself younger, like half, half my life, my own life ago, I never considered death. There's a certain point in life where you feel, or, or certainly I felt, uh, not invincible, but the considerations aren't there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking about what, what am I leaving behind? What's my legacy? Yeah. Will, will those I leave behind be financially secure? Like practical things, but also what am I teaching? What am I, like, what, what am I passing on to my kids that I want them to see in other people and to see the good and, and the bad, you know, so that they... They know what are the what are the things to embrace and what are the things to avoid, um, as I say, and and those type of things. So, like, the death, the consideration of death is something that we all have to do and we all have to face. Um, and sometimes it it comes um, very naturally, and sometimes it comes unfortunately shockingly to mm. us. Um, and how we navigate that, I think is something that we all have to consider and um, work through, I suppose. Mm. But I, I don't know. I don't know what that, that, um, how, how that feeds into, that was, that was a, just a random train of thought on what, on what death means. Yeah. But, but I, I don't think that our approach to film and these texts should necessarily just be about reading the text. It should be about how we emotionally respond to it. Cocteau mm-hmm. himself talks about the experience of the film. He wants the films to be an experience. And part of that experience is feeling stuff. It's also about the thoughts that it puts into your head. And certainly watching these films makes me think about stuff. And it yeah. makes me replay some of my own life experiences or lacks thereof. Mm-hmm. Um. And I mean, it just so happens that I am dealing with a lot of mortal dread at the moment. Mm. Um, I've had a real, some real issues recently with my own health, with health of family. I've had a bunch of friends have died, some Mm -hmm. of them dead old, and that's fine, sort of sad, but it's, you know, we understand you get to an age and this is going to happen at some point, but also some of them are very young. They're my age and younger, and you go, that's not right, because I'm still too young, and if they're dying when they're younger than me, then my own mortality is surely a question, and then you go, have I done enough? 
um you think about the things that you want to do and whether or not you're going to have time to complete them and increasingly i start thinking about i'm running out of time and the worst thing you can do is to think i'm running out of time because then all you do is you obsess about the time instead of just living and that's that's where you you die prematurely yeah that's yeah those those ideas and those those targets then face death as a consequence Mm. so you know because if 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 you if you think of i won't get that done then that that target is effectively dead mm-hmm. but if you if you take that as a as a way of doing something to get um you know it's it's a thing of nobody knows how much Nobody knows how much time we have. You could walk out and in the road and get hit by a bus by accident tomorrow. But this you know, podcast might never get edited. Yeah, like <laughs> I know. Like, like we did. We didn't mean to take into such a grim conversation. But it. Th- this is what these films do. Like I wasn't. I so death. Um. Death in this film never feels scary. To me, hmm. um, you know, you think of like horror movies, death representations. Even if you think of something like uh, as as warm and fuzzy as the Muppets Christmas Carol, didn't think I was going to invoke that. By the way, but when you get to the Ghost of Christmas Future, that pretty much appears in the form of what we think of when we think of what is death. The, you know, the Grim Reaper, yeah, Grim Reaper, um, that type of thing, and. Um, like death, death is presented often as a as a scary thing. You know, you think of um, oh, what do you call those films where they they killed people off, they annoyed death, and death chased them. What do you call them? Final Destination? That was oh it. yes, yes. Those films where death cannot be avoided is is the takeaway from that, and death yeah. will death will find you, catch you, and there's no there's no figure, but there is the event. Um, in various grim, gribbly, and sometimes in those films towards the end, very comedic ways, <laughs> like so, stuff that looked like straight out of a Looney Tunes flipping Roadrunner cartoon in some instances. But death in this film, I never felt any fear of death in this film. Mm. I never felt any fear of that. Um, even when they go in that underworld, afterworld, whatever way you want to refer to that. Um, Purgatory, possibly. I don't know. Not heaven. Not quite hell, either. I I, I never felt... There is a line, isn't there, about, you know, I go to hell for, but we don't have to go that far, isn't that, in this? Yeah, yeah. So it's Um, it's not, we know it's not hell. Yeah, yeah. To my mind, it was kind of an in-between. Um... Well, you have that that glazier, that young glazier running around the place trying to sell windows in, yeah. a, in a space where nothing has a window. Yeah. So, yeah, purgatory, I think, is probably the most most appropriate. Sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting. No, um, not at all. But that none of that ever felt scary to me. No. Um, and I don't know if that is is presentation or if that is connected into my own reaction to 
to death and and afterwards and and those type of things. Um, but yeah, and death death in this film doesn't seem to be something to be feared. It quite literally is something to be embraced in the course in the in mm. the case of Orfe. Um, maybe not lovingly, but certainly. Um, it, it is something to 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 be embraced. Maybe it's a strange one. I mean, I think he's fascinated by death, and he's obsessed with death, hmm. and he's fixated on her. And I don't know that it's love because they've just met, and to me that makes no logical sense. But I know in cinema and and literature, love is something that just happens like that. And yeah. then you get married and you're happy ever after. <laughs> it's not how it works in the real world, but you know, if it, if it does go that way, it's red flag time. Um, but so I, I'm not convinced. I mean, she's obviously in love. Death, de- her, his death. Yeah, the princess is in love with him, and I think she's been obsessing about him for a long time. She says, "I loved you before I even." met you but she's also been mm. coming in and watching when he's been sleeping but then if he doesn't see her when she's sleep when he's sleeping then she doesn't really exist according to what we've just read <laughs> those moments aren't real i love it it's only real whenever he sees her if he doesn't see her then it's not in the dream yeah yes ah! <laughs> i know i know mess, mess with your head but only that's what i'm saying only when you encounter death do you mm. think of death in some ways only when you encounter uh, you know, it, it's funny. Like it, it, this is why I'm becoming slowly obsessed with Kaku <laughs> because he is pushing all my buttons, and I don't. You know, you know, like that bit in Elf where he gets into lift and just goes down all the buttons. <laughs> That's what's happening to me when I watch this because it's starting to, um, it's starting to melt my head a little bit, but in a really good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. It it is it is challenging me, and it oh, is good. provoking me, and it is making me think about what do I think about death, and those things. You know, with the the films and faith moniker, those things become. Uh, you know, those things are talked about a lot. Mm. You know, and in some ways. In in that tradition, death is to be feared, because then you find out your destination point, and well, dare you find out that you're in for a rough time. But as I said last time, I yeah. find the idea of heaven, uh, in the church sense, as as equally boring it's, it's and hellish. frustrating. Yeah, it, it, I mean, as, it, it, yeah. I said, I said this once on Twitter. I said, sometimes heaven sounds like hell. And then somebody slid into my DMs to check uh, my my yeah. theology and uh, <laughs> at Denemo. But it, and you can read about that on filmsandfaith.substack.com uh, if you so wish, because I did write about that. But uh, yeah, th- those things are in the ether when you're in the religious circle, you know. Yeah, and, we're, uh, and we when we talked about this last week as well. I mean, Cocteau himself is is sort of from a, a Catholic background. I mean, that mm-hmm. religiosity, I guess, is inherent in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, when you're looking towards the Greek and Roman myths, we're also obsessed with this. I think. Yeah. Every, th- I think the thing about all the stuff is it's the unknown. So, I mean, you could watch this film in a very very straight way. You could because it is almost a straight 
linear narrative of a film. It's, he, yeah. he describes it as a thriller that also includes little elements of the supernatural. And mm-hmm. those elements of the supernatural, he tries to downplay. He tries to make it as realistic to a modern audience as he can, which is why you've got the voices coming through on the radio, because everyone has a radio. They understand that stuff. Um, so it feels real. Motorbikes feel real. Like death comes by on a motorbike. Yeah, okay, that does happen. Um, like you know, I knew someone who got hit, who, who got killed by a bus. You know, like these things mm. are, are are what goes on, um, as opposed to some specter coming out of nowhere and and sort of exploding your insides or something. You know, like so, it, it, like there's a logic within this as well, um, but there's something else at play with this. It's not just a straight narrative. There is other elements. This this supernatural thriller is sort of swamped in mythology and philosophy mm-hmm. um so for oh, i mean I, I i mean i think that this is probably a more accessible film for somebody who's not massively into ha- testing their noggin with film um than blood of a poet was it is um certainly it's certainly not as surreal it is certainly much more linear and more more structured, more uh Ooh, no. And, and more more what, what was it we talked about last li- time? More linear linear calls linear I think it's linear calls on narrative is, is mm. clearer. Like everything seems to follow on. Um is this more poetic? He does talk about orchestrating this. He uses the word he orchestrated it for this film. Yeah. Which would suggest poetic rather than poetry. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be a poetry there, or there's poetry within it. Um, interesting that that we kind of say this is less surreal, considering how much Cocteau hated the definition of surrealism for, yeah. for Blood of a Poet. Because, and again, I I say surreal as a very um, kind of accessible word, but I think to it describe is. that. I think it is, though. I mean, Blood of a Poet I probably should describe better as an avant-garde film, which is what gets tied in with the avant-garde movement. This is, mm. this is almost commercially enterprising it is much straighter at least on the surface but i think it is surreal i think that when you're dealing with the supernatural there's always an element of surreality in it also Mm. we very explicitly talk about sleeping and experiences when sleeping and it, it the surrealist movement always seems to be tied in with that unconscious sleeping self so I think it's a bit more, I think it'd be harder for Cocteau to turn around and say this isn't a surrealist film yeah. than it would be for Blood of a Poet. Although, I mean, there's an element where I kind of think some of his arguments are disingenuous. He's just being contrary for the sake of being contrary. Um, yeah, but I, else, I think there's a bit of him goes, eh, if you think that, that's fine. If you think this, that's fine. Whatever, you know. Yeah. He's, he's very much in that kind of UDU type the, energy there's another line uh, there's a couple of lines in the film that I, I quite like but there's one in particular I've written down here it says what does marble think when it's being sculpted it thinks I am struck insulted rushed lost life is sculpting me I'm going to use that in my twitter bio yeah <laughs> <laughs> try getting a match on tinder with that I might do that tonight <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah it's like yeah and again to, to come back to what what is alive and what is dead? Mm. The idea of of marble having a having a presence of thought, having a consciousness of thought. Mm-hmm. Some this is where we're into the, into the philosophical um, 
and the, you know, there's there's so much philosophical thought in this that seems seems abstract and odd to drop into this kind of story, but but it's also harkening back. I mean, when we take mm. this as the center of three films that are linked. I mean, he talked about statues and obsession. If you the problem with like obsessing about taking down statues is that eventually you become one. Yeah, is what he says in, in Blood of a Poet. Um, but statues, and, which, which actually suggests in itself a, a transmogrification from life to inanimate form. We know that statues, the statues themselves, are composed and crafted and, and sculpted in order to represent a reality. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between them and, and us? Nothing. I mean, the statues no. in Blood of a Pot are alive. They are they are alive within the context of the film. So, yeah. and we are we are sculpted and molded by the world around us by influences, uh, family influences, you know, uh, all all sorts of things. Like so, sculpting and molding between the human frame and the marble. Yeah, mm. okay, I can see it. Like. I, I am the way I am because of my lived experience. Mm-hmm. Do you know that's that's a process of sculpting, sculpting, molding, refining. You're a parent. I mean, yeah. a, a parent will try and mold their child to fit. I mean, traditionally we do it to, in our in our image. The same way, you know, to take the Christian philosophy, humanity is molded in God's image. Mm. Therefore, there is a sculpting that goes on in order to create life. We need that in order to be alive, um, but at the same time, you can only sculpt so much because people have to have their own experiences. You mentioned love mm. whenever we were chatting just before we started recording. You had a question. A pre- a preamble. I, I have a question about love in this because okay. the traditional story of this is that Orfe and Eurydice are very much in love separated and this offer from death comes about as a kind of uh almost like a wage almost like a wager um you know you can't look at her after she returns you know knowing that it would it will fail at some point um and and, and in the original story it feels just as they're about to leave the underworld right he he sort of he, he can't hear her Yes, and he starts to doubt whether or not she's actually behind him. And just at the last minute, the the reference that they make within this film is they talk about the pillar of salt. They talk about Lot, yeah, Lot, Lot's, Lot's wife, wife yeah. um, who loses her faith and turns back and gets turned into a pillar of salt. Yeah, um, so that's when it happens there. That's not where it happens in Cocteau's version. No, it happens later on. But I, I didn't feel during the film that. Orfe and Eurydice are particularly um, in love in a in a massively loving well not not in love but not in a not in a loving relationship certainly from him to her I feel like she very much dotes on him and uh, is very supportive there's lots of chat around supporting his work early on and the importance of him in the world and things like that but the the, the the counter to that uh from him towards her is very uh dismissive and harsh at times mm. i said to you before we recorded i don't know that it would like in terms of being an abusive relationship i didn't feel 
it was done with any real malice, but it certainly wasn't the most loving and endearing relationship. Or is that because he encounters death and then finds that more attractive and there's more, it's not love in the death thing. There's more of a lust there, um, which isn't in his actual marriage. Would that be fair? Um, I I guess in part there's not enough information within the film for us to make a complete judgment call on it, so it's about our interpretation and how we experience the film, and mm. that's also probably coloured by the way that we've experienced our own romantic relationships within our lives. It strikes me that this is a kind of relationship that is quite common, and probably was even more common back then, and probably completely common in France, where traditionally, apparently, you know, men had mistresses all the time and nobody bats an eyelid. There is a conversation that they have about, he's gone off with some floozy, basically. And, you know, he's a bloke, this is what happens, he'll come back, don't worry yes. about it. It's almost like an expectation. Um, Do you know what was really interesting about that conversation, too? They go looking for him at several hotels, and one of them is a hotel of the Hot Springs mm. uh, with this woman, and one of them is a hotel between worlds, is the translation. Uh-huh. Um, the hotel, the hotel de deux mondes, uh, hotel two worlds, yeah, yeah. And uh, my GCSE French, <laughs> I can went, see as we face going right now. He's like, Hello. I've had another moment. <laughs> I'll have I'll have a Google of that <laughs> to find the translation. So very very interesting hotel names in relation to that. But yeah, the inference being that he's just away having a having it away with somebody. You know? Yeah, it, it seems to be, and there, there's not a massive, there's not a massive concern about that either. Mm. Um, I think that he strikes me as being a rather narcissistic individual. Yeah, and let me pick up on that in a second. Um, so, and I, I think there's an element of being in love with himself, being obsessed with himself, like, again, onanistic, masturbatory kind of indulgence again harkening back to blood of a poet mm-hmm. um i mean we haven't even touched on the homoeroticism that exists within the film and it's casting uh, mm. we'll save that for for testament or um i don't know is it are they in love the way it ends up ends in a real kind of tender moment and it's almost as if they have to go through the experience of losing each other in order to find themselves which mm-hmm. again possibly fits in with the idea that you have to go through multiple deaths in order to become real and he has to die multiple times because he's, yeah. he goes through the underworld twice Um, he has literally died twice in order to get out of that whole system in fact is it twice he's died or is it three times uh, that's just a twice. It's twice, so, I think. So there is but that, when, that. Yeah, when he when he eventually returns to the real world at the film's conclusion, then it appears to be a very mm. loving relationship, very tender, and she is she is pregnant as well. Um, I mean, they, it, is it a chance that he's maybe ha- this is all a dream fa- that the whole experience is part of his his dream fantasy where he feels that he's becoming the person that he wants to be to live the life that he, he thinks he should do but actually yeah. discovers that this isn't who he is at all and the person that he is is the person that loves his wife hmm. potentially cocktail probably goes whatever yeah <laughs> maybe maybe not i mentioned nor- narcissistic uh there uh, uh, kind of it, it strikes me as something i should pick up on as well uh it occurred to me earlier narcissistic from the Echo and Narcissus story. Narcissus falls in love with his own reflection mm-hmm. and wastes away. 
again there's this uh, i'm feeling kind of connections back to the sense of the mirror being the representation of death it's through death that we mm. see through our reflection that we see death that that death exists i mean it literally kills narcissus by staring at himself that's why you're better off looking away for a while coming back when you're grayer um but he so the it, it's it's not even just Cocteau that's looking at this this way. It's it, it's embedded in you know in ancient mythology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those things. How how we view the self. How we how we view death. How we uh, look at look at love. What we, what we feel about love. Like it's all it's all within the bones of this. I think. Mm. Um. And yeah, I, d- I didn't quite think of him. Well, he does. Yeah, he is a bit narcissistic, actually. Like just in how he refers to himself, he finds the uh, suggest like a challenger. Like mm. he ha- he has taken some of his fame, um, and yet he-, he seems quite jealous of that because he seems to be the young up and coming uh, poet of the moment. So it seems to be competition very early on that he's not keen on. Also, it feels like that village that he lives in has fallen out of love with him initially at the start because um, mm. a lot of people move away from him and uh, separate themselves off from him um, dismiss him quite quickly and, and rudely at the film's beginning uh, when he's around kind of more village folk and stuff like that. So there is a there is an, an ego edge to this which is struggling um, yeah. in the real world um, he also just narcissistic and, and selfish to the point even when we're talking about the car and he becomes obsessed with this radio these messages uh, snippets of poems or thoughts which turn out to be suggest communicating from the afterlife it's mm. revealed much later on Um I I originally thought that was Cocteau reading <laughs> uh, just bits and excerpts and things like that when I first heard it because the voice doesn't sound like the character in the film yeah. uh, when it comes to the radio. But, you know, so then, then he finds himself enthralled by the work of this poet that he, who he's jealous of. Who he's jealous of. <laughs> um, and I he's, mean... yeah, it, there his his ego and his narcissism also has an effect on that loving relationship too because he's he is determined to go and sit in this car and hear mm-hmm. this great poetry and write it down and craft it into something over and above the relationship with his with his wife with his pregnant mm-hmm. wife um and that that selfishness could be seen as narcissistic as well like this is much more important than you are so mm. I'm going to go and do this and sit in this weird car. And um, literally walk over the clothes that you're making for our baby. Yeah, it doesn't even acknowledge. She drops a like a child's sock or booty or something. I mean, and he literally I, stands on it and doesn't acknowledge its existence. Because he's so blinkered. I mean, he's so caught up with himself. He's, he's so yeah. focused. I mean, it's, it's slightly... Uh, it's obviously complex as well because then you've got issues where he has points where he gets mobbed by people looking for autographs also suggest mm-hmm. is, is utterly incompetent and almost infantile um yeah yeah it's interesting just on the on the love thing as well can i ask mm-hmm. you this about how the film ends yes of course you can 
so towards the towards the end of the film, we have uh, they go back to the to the to the real world. What we say mm-hmm. to be the real world. And he is told, you can't look at Yurdis or she will disappear forever. Mm. And it almost becomes quite comedic at points because she's like diving under tables to avoid his gaze. and all. It's it kind of, brilliant. I love that. that, it, that goes, heartedness. it goes a wee bit kind of carry on like, whoop. And like it's people jumping French into his It's a French farce at that point. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's deliberately played comedic as well. I mean, it's not like it wasn't, it wasn't an accidental comedy. It was meant to be comedic. Yeah, and it's a lovely bit of lightness into what is quite a quite a serious film. But then they go and they sit in the car. They're all together, mm-hmm. and uh, she is told like you have to be really careful trying to because she's trying to lovingly like stroke his neck and nuzzle him and and things like that. And then he glances her in the rearview mirror of the car. Mm-hmm. But I wondered at that point because it almost looks like she adjusts his gaze like she's doing all this kind of affectionate Mm -hmm. rubbing of the neck he is not engaged in this at all or really that into it Mm -hmm. until the kind of final moment and then it felt like she moved his eyes into the mirror he sees her and she's gone Mm -hmm. and i thought had she just had enough at that point yes Uh, yeah (laughs) I think, okay. I think I think yes, I think for her it was an impossible situation. Um, I think it's 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 a deliberate uh, attempt at uh, trying to escape mm-hmm. what's going on. It's to bring an end to this this horribleness. It, it, it would be it would be quite torturous. You know, in in mm-hmm. terms of afterworlds and hell talk that we've engaged a lot in here, like. That's that is quite a torture to think this person can still be around you, but you can never look at them. Yes, no, completely. You know. I, I'm, I'm just trying to see. Uh, what does he say on this? Um, so Cocteau's own synopsis of this mm-hmm. uh, describes the sequence. He says, Orpheus allowed to take his wife back on condition that he never looks at her again. Her to bees will help them to abide by this clause. They soon understand how difficult it will be, feeling that she will never again be able to recover Orfe's love. Eurydice tries to die for the second time by forcing her husband to look at her. Mm-hmm. At last she succeeds and disappears forever. So it it is a deliberate... The intention was always that she's deliberately trying to do it because she feels that she's lost him. I think yeah. that she is aware that she has lost him to his obsession with death, but also because they are not able to interact as a couple... Like, how can you do that? How can you bring up a child whenever you are not able to to interact fully? Yeah. And considering that part of the problem seems to be that he keeps on running out the bedroom window and gallivanting off via his ladder in an inverse of a a teenager trying to sneak into someone's bedroom, he's always on the way out. Mm. Um and, and that's something that's that's tacitly acknowledged. I mean, when you when you have someone that's in that kind of existence already to then go and create a situation where they have to live separate lives. Yeah. It's almost it's, like an enforced separation, an enforced divorce. Do you know, it's interesting you say that about climbing out the window because they, so the bedroom is up uh, like a ladder and he continually refers to that as a trap door. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and a trapdoor to me refers to when you go down a trapdoor, you are in a dungeon, you're in a basement, you're in a place of torture. Mm. And he, I wonder, is there a bit where he sees that that kind of domestic life underneath the bedroom as a as a place of uh, or a form of torture in some ways? Because why else call it a you know why else call it like a trap door, not loft door, or you yeah. know something like that? I wonder. I mean, I wonder how much of this is down to translation as well. Um, it could well be. But the, the, I mean, that also makes you think of, of uh, when I'm thinking about what actually happens in the in the, the bedroom, there's not an awful lot apart from her her death and resurrection, mm. and transversion through the mirror. Um, but that is the kind of the first level of underworld mm-hmm. in a way as well. In fact, I suppose it's our only underworld because whenever they're in through the mirror, that's not necessarily under the ground. It's just in a dark twilight space. Um, yeah. It's 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 causing lots of questions here, Neil. <laughs> Isn't it? It really is. And uh I I don't know where we're going next. But, so you, um, you so you have no idea what's ahead of you for Oh no, I've no part. clue. Excellent. So No spoilers. Uh, <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> I haven't I haven't gone looking. I want to I want to do so I I've, I've referred to my cocktail obsession. So what what I'm doing is I'm just kinda finding the art and pictures of the man and uh-huh. doing to kind of give me some reference point for him but i'm not looking at these films ahead i want to i want to take them look at them react to them here and then i want to do the thing where i go and get like uh the art of cinema and i i sit with that and i read it and i get his mm-hmm. uh informed view on what he is doing to his mind so i have no i have no clue what's coming next um but flip me if it keeps you know the insomnia vibes of this like if i think about this too much i'll just lie and look at the bedroom ceiling all night this may explain my recent problems with lack of sleep <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just the two are feeding into each other the, the, the rattling the these things around continually like this i like i joke many episodes ago what are we doing here are we doing a film podcast are we doing philosophy are we doing therapy for goodness sake what are we doing all of the above that's the secret well done as long as long as people are entertained but my gosh i mean like some of our live some of our live events have definitely been therapy for people in the room i mean you know it's 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 a weird process well look i mean i'm i'm loving the fact that you've been you've been so into the films and enjoying this journey too and it's it's such a it's a really interesting experience for me to introduce a filmmaker to somebody else and literally see them going through a journey Mm. and their responses and you know we, we presumably will feel different about these things but there's an interest there which is great so testament for those of you listening and watching um Go and check out uh, Orfe. It's available on on Blu-ray and it's on streaming services. and And just go and, and check it and watch it out. And if you if if you were hesitant about Blood of a Poet or you find it too difficult, this is probably a lot easier to get into. I think. Yeah. Um. In the next episode, we're going to cover the final part of the Orpheus trilogy, the Testament d'Orfe, the Testament of Orpheus. If you have to have mm-hmm. an English translation, um, I I'm I'm not going to say very much about it apart from. Everything there's a reason we're doing the trilogy. Okay. What you've seen in Blood of a Poet and what you've mm. seen in Orpheus are both 
going to play a part in Testament of Orpheus, which is going to take you somewhere else entirely. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it it is it is it is yeah it as a trilogy it's a bit of a, a bit of a head melt but it's so much more satisfying and i, I just sort of realized like this is a trilogy that takes place over 30 years i mean we talk yeah. about really long sequels gaps at the moment is a big thing where yeah. Marvel franchises are coming back years later back I mean, to matrix is, again i mean it, literally there's 20 years between uh blood of a poet and orpheus and there's another 10 years between orpheus and testament of orpheus yeah. So like it's a, it's it, it's interesting that we have that as well. Um so Neil, thank you very much for Oh no problem. Thank for you for doing this. And I'm looking forward to our next little chat. Have goodness, to say. I can't, I'm I'm excited to see where we go next, to be honest. I'm um, a little I'm a little scared. <laughs> <laughs> rightly so uh, folks at home hopefully you've enjoyed if you have enjoyed or you haven't enjoyed do let us know contact us on the various social media platforms you know the score by now we are on Instagram Facebook uh, Twitter and all sorts of places also check out our website cinepunk.com if you enjoy the podcast do give it a subscribe if you've not listened before um, on whatever your platform of choice is tell your friends about it too and uh, we will catch you again very very soon until then cheerio cheerio